Hi everyone, welcome back to Hitchcock University where you learn filmmaking from the masters. This is our first class session of the brand new 2019. Um, I hope you all had a, a great hiatus and uh, are ready to come back and learn with us again. As we learn filmmaking this year from Robert Rodriguez and Quentin Tarantino. And that's where we're going to start uh, this this semester. We're going to start this semester with Quentin and his movie Reservoir Dogs. Hopefully you've already listened to the syllabus so you kind of have a general idea of where we're going this semester. Um, so I would like to give a little bit of backstory on Quentin Tarantino because I'm pretty sure I'm going to do the same thing uh, for Robert Rodriguez when we talk about his first film, El Mariachi. So, so that you have a little bit of context for kind of where we're going and kind of how this movie got made and, uh, and what it was and, and what it means to make your first feature film, um, at least if you're Quentin Tarantino. Um, so Tarantino worked in a video store for like five years, uh, a place called Video Archives um, in the Los Angeles area for a very, very long time. Um, he has been known to say that while that was wonderful, that was possibly also the worst thing that happened to him um, because it, it, it took some of the urgency to get into the film business out of him. It took some of that away um, because he thought he was doing things to advance his career, which compared to the people working at a video store, I, I guess he was. Um, but not compared to the people who were really trying to break in and had moved to Hollywood and were, you know, just on the outskirts of the industry, you know, just waiting for that big break. So while he's working at the video store, he decides, well, I'm just going to go make a movie. Film's not that expensive. I can do this. Goes out. He, uh, he's he got a 16 millimeter camera that he borrows from somebody. Um, rents gear from a rental house on the weekends because then it's only a one day rental. But you have it all weekend. You get it Friday, and then you have to bring it back Monday morning. And you know, just any time he could scrounge enough money together to buy some film stock and rent the gear, they'd go out and make this movie. It took him like three years, I think, to make the movie. All the while, he's not paying to have it processed, so he really doesn't know what he has. And then he finally, he finally um, set, scrapes enough money together to get this this whole movie processed, and looks at the footage and realizes he doesn't have anything. It's all, it, he called it very amateurish. It's 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 not. It definitely wasn't what he thought he was making. But he spent three years doing it, and so he was able to say, well, that was my film school. Okay, now it's time to go out and do the real thing. Now I've learned everything not to do. I need to take this experience and go make a movie. So he had had this story gestating in him for several years about a heist movie where you never see the heist. And along the way, he'd been writing some other scripts for, for money and doing, you know, just little passes on other scripts for money, you know, just kind of doing everything he could once he left the video store to get into the business and his biggest asset was his writing ability. So he's, he's writing scripts, he's selling scripts. Um, he's, he's doing dialogue passes on scripts, stuff like that. And finally he sells a script called true romance. And his whole goal was once he sold a script, he was going to take that money and make, this heist film of his called Reservoir Dogs. So he takes, so 
so he's got the script Reservoir Dogs ready to go. And he finally sells True Romance. And here we go. He's off and running. Somewhere in that process, he met a man by the name of Lawrence Bender. Lawrence Bender was a producer who had produced some, like, $100,000 slasher film for Empire or somebody like that. And he's talking to Lawrence about this script that he's going to do, and he's going to make his own movie. And, and when Bender sees the script, he says, no, 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 no. You're not going to make this on your own. I'm going to get you, you know, I can, I can turn this into something. I can get us the money to do this for real and still have you direct it. And at that point, Quentin had heard so many of those kinds of things that he was like, no, 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 no. I just got to do this on my own. He said, all right, here's the deal. Here's the deal, Quentin. Give me just a couple, just give me two months, just two months to see if I can get this off the ground and moving. And if not, you can go back to doing exactly what it is you were going to do. You can wait just two months. All right, fine. You have two months. So Lawrence Bender gets the script in front of Harvey Keitel. And once Harvey reads it, he's immediately on board. And that didn't blow open doors because Harvey Keitel wasn't... Even though he'd done all that work with Scorsese early on in his career, he still wasn't Harvey Keitel. Um, So it didn't blow open doors, but it did give them some legitimacy because he was a legit character actor. I mean, people knew who he was. He was a name that when it was attached, people were like, oh, well, that's interesting. And so next thing they know, they have $5,000 or $500,000. And the next thing they know, they have a million dollars. And then finally, finally it comes in. They have a million and a half dollars to shoot this movie. And now the movie is completely different. I mean, he's got Michael Madsen. He's got Lawrence Turney. He's got, um, oh, shoot, which Penn brother is in this? One of the Penn brothers is in this. Um, he's got Tim Roth. He's got Steve Buscemi. He's got all these guys. And, you know, he's got a professional DP and Andre Sakula, and he's got Sally Mankey, and he's he's got all these people around him. And now all of a sudden, and all this way more money than he ever thought he was going to have. He thought he'd have like $30,000 to make this movie. No, now he's got a million and a half dollars of money invested in him to make a good movie. Okay, how do you deal with that? How do you deal with that pressure? Well, it helps that Quentin has always been a very confident person. But Quentin knew two things. Really, he knew one thing, but he kind of knew two things. He knew that he could direct actors. He knew that that was possible um, because he had spent so much time trying to become an actor. um, He knew he could talk to actors. He knew that that wouldn't be a problem. The biggest thing he knew was that he knew the story. He knew the movie, he knew the script, he knew the piece, he knew the characters, he knew the world, he knew everything about that story, which meant that he was the best person to make this movie because everyone on the set knew way more about filmmaking than he did, but he was the only one who knew that story. And what he said in um, in a great uh, two-part uh, interview um, on Robert Rodriguez's uh, show the director's chair, um, which is on his El Rey network, um, cable channel, but you can also get the, you know, you can get the episodes on like Amazon and stuff like that. What he said there is he said, if you're doing a piece, that's the answer. Get to know that piece. I had chewed the rag on it so much. There was no one better than me to tell this story. Now, whatever happens after that is whatever happens after that. But I knew this story. Everybody else on the set could know, could know, 
a hell of a lot more about filmmaking than than I did, and they all did, but I knew this material better than they did. And that's the thing. You are going to make a movie, and you have other people relying on you. The best thing you can do is know your material. You have to know the characters. You have to know what every moment, what every interaction, everything about that movie means. You have to know every, like, down to the detail of when so-and-so, you know, looks, you know, shoots a glance at somebody else and then shoots a glance back at, at who they're talking to, right? You know, you have to know what every single beat in that story means. That's the only way to guarantee that you're not going to fail completely. Or if you do, you're at least you're going to fail spectacularly. Because we can get so wrapped up in where does the camera go? Where do I put the lights? You know, how do I mix the sound? Um, you know, what about the color timing? How do I, you know, how do I do that? And um, what about the music? Where do I put the music? How do I, how do I write to music? How do I, how do I make the music right to write to the movie? What you can get so wrapped up in all those things, but at the end of the day, you have to remember you're telling a story. And if you can keep that in the forefront, that you're telling a story, then the first thing it does is it narrows your down your options, which is the best thing available to you because you have too many options to start. I mean, there there are literally, I believe, an infinite number of ways to make any one movie, but it it helps bring to focus what tools you need to tell the story. That's that's what makes that's what makes filmmaking filmmaking, um, because it is it is a technical form of telling stories. But if you if you just know the story front to back, back to front, you know everything about it, every little detail, every little character, what they're all feeling at any given moment, what kind of emotions are running through their head. You can do anything. You can talk to the actors. You can you can do anything. It's all storytelling. So um, let's talk about what tools he used to tell his first cinematic story. Um, so this this comes straight from a book called Quentin Tarantino Interviews. Uh, this, these, this is the third season you're going to hear about so-and-so interviews. There's a great series of books put out by the University of Mississippi Press or something like that. It's called the Conversations with Filmmakers series or something like that. This is where I pull so much of my information from. Um, so, yes, from, from that book, Quentin Tarantino Interviews. There's a, an interview called Answers First, Questions Later, which is, for Tarantino, probably the best titled interview I can ever think. Um, and, and, and they're talking to him about how he omits information from his stories. And he says, to me, it even applies to the way you frame a shot. What you don't see in the frame is as important as what you do see. Some people like to show everything. They don't want the audience to have a second guess about anything. It's all there. I'm not like that. I've seen so many movies that I like playing around with them. Pretty much 9 out of 10 movies you, you see let you know in the first 10 minutes what kind of movie it's going to be. And I think the audience subconsciously reads this early 10-minute message and starts leaning to the left when the movie gets ready to make a left turn. They're predicting what the movie is going to do. What I like to do is use that information against them. So there's a lot to unpack there just in storytelling, and we're going to get to all that stuff. But I want to go back to where he starts because... Because all of that second, all of that really primary information about using information against the audience informs how Tarantino frames his shots. Because it's not just about what you see 
It's about what you don't see, what is not in the frame. If you want to communicate to the audience that two characters, their relationship is falling apart, maybe they're not in the same frame. If you want to, if part of the next big beat is the arrival of a character, well, then maybe that character shouldn't be in your frame. Um, if anytime things are changing in the story, sometimes you need to withhold information from the audience. Anytime you want the audience to not quite know what's going on, certain things can't be in the frame. You don't always want to give them everything. You know, a, a perfect example of this is horror films. It, it, it's, it's the perfect example. It's a great way to build suspense and terror in an audience by not showing them everything. Now, that's not to say, that's not to, that's not to, to discount what we talked about with Hitchcock, where you give the audience information and that builds suspense. But if you want to build fear, real fear, you don't show them everything. One of the best examples of this, and I hope we get to do a whole semester on Spielberg. Um, one of the best examples of this is Jaws, right? I mean, everybody talks about this. You can't have a filmic conversation about Jaws without talking about how you'd never see, like for half the movie, you don't see the shark. And for most of the movie, you don't see the shark. Because the audience's imagination is far more potent than anything you can show them on screen. You know? That's a perfect example of not giving the audience everything, not showing them everything. Because what you don't see is just as important as what you do see. I, I would really encourage you guys to, to take that information, take that idea, and go back and watch some Tarantino movies, especially Reservoir Dogs, because there's some really good examples of that in this film. One of, the one, one of those is we're going to get to in a moment here. But yeah, the reveal, you know, Moving the camera or moving the actors around to show something that they didn't see before, that's a very powerful move in cinema. Um, and that that is based on the principle of what you do see as to what you don't see. And we're going to get to a really good reveal in this movie. Um, so there's another interview uh, called When You Know You're in Good Hands. And one of the things um, Tarantino talks about in this interview is how one of the fun things about making a movie is there's a whole lot of vocabulary. So this scene I'll shoot in one long take, this scene I'll do through forced perspectives, this scene I want to do very minimal coverage. And he, you know, just kind of talks about how the beauty of filmmaking is there's so many different ways to do it. And since Tarantino was first starting, I don't know that he'd really developed too much of a... I, well, that's probably not true. He, he definitely did have a, a visual style, but at the same time, he liked experimenting and trying a bunch of different things. So for example... Um, he says, one of the things I like doing is incorporating many different styles of shooting in the course of making a movie. I never shoot in one specific cinematic language. I like using as many are as appropriate. Part of the fun of that opening sequence is that there are three different styles of shooting. The whole first part, the Madonna section, is just the camera moving around. Even when you got to a close-up, the camera is still doing its move around. And when it gets into the Harvey Keitel Lawrence turning thing about the address book, you stop and do two shots. And when it gets into the tips part, we've got the geography of the table now, so the whole thing is doing, is done in these massive close-ups. Whenever you do a scene that long, you have to break it down into sections. Ten minutes for your opening sequence is a really long fucking time. I'm sorry. That's, I'm, I'm just quoting him. It's a really long fucking time, especially if they're doing nothing but sitting down talking. Um, 
Why did I shoot the third section in close-ups? I don't really have an answer. It just felt right. So you have all these tools at your disposal. That doesn't mean you have to just pick one. You as the filmmaker have the ability to, to in, even instinctively or intuitively decide what's the best way to tell the story. Sometimes you can get into danger overthinking it. Um, that is a possibility. Well, and one of the other things that he talked about, I didn't pull the quote, um, is uh, in that Madonna section, the camera's just moving around the table. It's not choreographed to who's saying what and when. It just moves around the table. So sometimes you're picking up the guy talking about what he, uh, you know, about the thing, and sometimes you're just picking up reaction shots. Um, yeah, you're not limited to one thing. You're not even limited to one thing in a scene. Um, one of the things that a lot of directors talk about is talking about directing to the beats. So when a new when when a scene when there's there's a pivotal moment in the scene where things change, like for example in this opening scene he he's talking about beats he doesn't say it that way but that's what he's talking about he talks about the Madonna section and then the Harvey Keitel Lawrence Lawrence Turney bit and then the tipping part right okay well each each shift is a beat when when Harvey Keitel you know, addresses Lawrence turning and says, you know, are you gonna, you know, hey, knock it off. I, you know, I gotta listen all day to this crap, you know, that's a beat that, that changes the scene. So by directing to the beat, instead of doing the classical way of directing to the beat is you start on a wide shot, you get closer and your coverage just gets closer and closer and closer until there's a beat and then you go back wide. Okay. That's the old school way of doing it. Um, here he changes styles. That's how he's directing to the beat. He goes from moving the camera around in this big 360 thing to boom, static two shots. That's it. You know, and then when, when they start talking about the tipping, it's boom, it's all in close-ups. You know, um, it's it's that it's it's just it's just a different way of doing things. It's just another way of directing to the beat because you have all these tools available to you. And it, it just sometimes sometimes you just need to go with your gut because sometimes your gut might be right. Now, something else technical that he talks about on how to tell his story, how he told his story. This also comes from, comes from the same interview, When You Know You're in Good Hands. Um, he says, I like to hold for as long as I can before I have to cut. And when I do cut, I want it to fucking mean something. Okay? This is something we've talked about a lot. The power of the edit. And how, you know, and, and normally we've talked about it through montage. How cutting from this point to this point thing can then imply a third idea. If each shot is an idea, then you can create a third idea between those two shots. To an extent, that's what Tarantino's talking about. But at the same time, it's kind of not. His thinking is each shot means something. And if I cut to another shot, that needs to mean something too. So, um, there's the scene where uh one of the characters i'm i'm assuming you all have seen this movie but at the same time i don't want to give too much away because it's such a fun ride so i'm going to put this as vaguely as possible there's a scene where one of the characters blows away another character and he says he says and i quote it's an emotional cut like after all those long takes and rope remember we talked about that in the in the hitchcock uh semester um, all of a sudden, you cut to Jimmy Stewart. It cuts to Stewart's reaction. You've never seen a reaction shot the whole movie. I figured out what was important was watching. I'm going to take out the character and actor names just to not give it away. Um, 
I figured out what was important was watching Mr. So-and-so empty out his gun. It wasn't, blam, cut to the other guy, boom, more shots. It wasn't going back and forth between them. It looks like he's going to set the guy on fire, and boom, he's blown out of frame, and we see the guy who you forgot was even in the room. By this time, he's become a piece of furniture, and he's emptying his gun. The camera goes around him and reveals the other character blown all the way across the warehouse. It was realizing that the visceral impact of the scene was not the guy getting shot, but the guy doing the shooting. And it, so, so there's a lot going on there. First off, let's go back to an idea we were talking about before, the idea of the reveal. What you don't see in the frame is just as important as what you do see, right? That shot that he's talking about, it starts in not quite a profile of the character doing the shooting. You know, and it's in the wide, you know, it's in the two, three, five ratio. And so, you know, it's got his face and the gun is a fucking cool shot. Um, and then the camera arcs around him, which is even more badass. And then comes around behind him to see the guy on the other side of the room, you know, slumped in the corner, bloody and dead. Um, very Tarantino, right? And what you see in the frame mostly is the guy doing the shooting. And like he says, it's a guy you forgot was even there. And what he realized in his prep work, see, and this is why you have to know your story, that that was the beat. The beat there is this guy blowing the other guy away. That's what changes everything. That's what makes it so much more, you know, there's a visceral moment there that happens. That's, that's his word, visceral. And so to start cutting back and forth between them wasn't the point because that was this character's moment for the character and for the audience. That was his moment. And so to take that, so by cutting back and forth, you would take it away from him. So just holding on him and then revealing what he did to the other guy. That's the story of that moment. That's the story of that beat. So some really good ideas here. We're going to talk a lot about storytelling with Quentin Tarantino because he is a storyteller. He's a writer. He's a director. He's just a storyteller. But that's all we have for this class session. So next up is El Mariachi, and then we're going to do Pulp Fiction, and then we're going to do uh, Desperado. Um, uh, I mentioned this in the syllabus, but I'm going to mention it again. Don't forget to check out, um, as they come out, the first of every month we'll have on the newly minted Hitchcock University YouTube channel. Um, we're going to do something called the Robert Rodriguez method where, um, basically I'm doing, I'm, I'm trying to go out and do things like Robert Rodriguez. What I don't want to give too much away, but basically Robert Rodriguez is known for doing as many jobs as as he possibly can. Um, and, and, and learning as much as he can so that he doesn't have to rely on other people all the time. So I'm going to try to do just little short videos, um, once a month, on the first of every month, one one should drop. Um, and each one of them is going to be a challenge designed to make me better at some skill. Um, and hopefully they'll kind of build on each other as, the, as, as, as everything goes along. That being said, um, so yeah, uh, first of every month, new one of those should drop. We're, we'll also do commentary tracks and maybe some behind the scenes. I don't really know. I'm going to try to fill that up with hopefully useful content, not just entertainment. Um, on top of that, um, no, not on top of that. Um, oh, yeah. 
And so you can follow what we're doing. I'll post updates and stuff. Those will be on the Facebook page, um, Hitchcock University, and and our Twitter account, Hitch underscore U, as in university. And we'll see if I can finally start integrating my Instagram account for this podcast. I haven't really done anything with it because I didn't know what to do with it. I, I'm not a social media person. Um <laughs> Uh, yeah. And then, um, obviously if you like what you're listening to, um, it'd be great if you gave us a comment, a like, a rating, a review, whatever you got, uh, wherever it is you listen to the show, whether it's SoundCloud, Tuner, uh, TuneIn Radio, Stitcher, um, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, of course. Um, and then if you have any comments, questions, concerns, otherwise you can always reach out to the podcast directly. Uh, I have a Gmail account, HitchcockUniversity at gmail.com. Um, yeah, that's all we got. Uh, thank you for listening to Hitchcock University. This has been Taylor Bickle, and I will talk to you again in two weeks. Thanks so much.